Welcome to the Martin Bailey Photography Podcast, sponsored by WebSpy. It's June 9th, 2009, and this is episode 194. On Saturday the 6th of June 2009, I had the pleasure of attending a party to mark the opening of Tokyo-based photographer John Shear's exhibition, Eternal Japan. Today I'm excited to be able to bring you a great interview with John, recorded a few few days after the party. There are a few things to note before we move on to the interview. First, I'd like to say thank you to our sponsors, WebSpy, the Internet Monitoring, Analysis and Reporting Specialist. To find out more about WebSpy and their products, go to webspy.com slash mbp and use the discount code mbpwsy for a 10% discount on all purchases. Also, as I alluded to last week, our sponsors, WebSpy, have kindly put up a $1,000 budget for us to buy prizes for the photography assignment winners. Today, I announced the prizes via my new blog, and I'll put a link to that announcement in the show notes. To quickly let you know here, though, the third place winner will receive every issue of Lenswork Extended up until December this year when the prize winners will be decided. The second place winner will receive a Lens Baby Composer and the first place winner will receive a Sigma 50mm f1.4 EX DG HSM lens. If the winner already has this lens or simply doesn't want it, um, which I couldn't understand why uh, if that happens, but you will be able to exchange the prize for a $500 B&H gift voucher instead. And how cool is that? So finally, uh, as I just mentioned, uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about is that I've launched a new blog today, and you can find that at blog.martinbaileyphotography.com. So just replace the www with blog and you're away. I'm going to be blogging on photography-related topics and also using the blog for extended show notes, as we'll do today. Um, everything that, you know, that I've got planned um, will take a, a little bit of time, but if it goes well, Um, You'll also be able to download podcast files directly from the blog. Um, And, you know, though I'm not sure at this time how or if I'll go back and backdate this. There's 193 episodes up on the the feed at the moment. So, you know, I don't know if I'll be able to get back and and sort of move those across. Um, The current iTunes feed will remain in place for now as well while I work this out. Um, you know, but whatever, whatever I decide or whatever we do, uh, you know, there, there shouldn't be any uh, disruption to the service. Anyway, enough of all that. Now let's listen to our great interview with John Shear. By the way, if you're listening to this in the enhanced podcast version, uh, you'll be able to see John's images on your iPhone or, or in iTunes as we, um, you know, as we talk about them. If not, you'll need to go to the to the blog that I just mentioned. So today, uh, really proud, excited to have John Shear on the sh- on the show. Welcome, John. Thank you very much, Martin. It's uh, both an honor and a pleasure uh, to be tonight's uh, guest star, so to speak. <laughs> no, it, it's the pleasure's all mine. You know, it really is amazing. I, I, we've been sort of communicating for a while now via uh, Flickr and the odd phone call, but you know, going over and seeing your 
exhibition on Saturday night. It was a real treat. So thanks for the invite and uh, you know, really good evening. Oh, my pleasure. I mean, thanks for coming. It was uh, it really meant a lot to me. I, I really, uh, really, really love your uh, your work. Uh, I think it's top notch, and uh, I find it very inspirational. And to have oh. you attend was just a, a fantastic honor. Oh, that's that's really nice of you to say. So, no, like I say, though, I mean, the, I I like you know I've been a fan of your work for a while as well, and I but I I just was blown away. I mean, I, I'd love to print my own images out and hold them there, big thirteen by. 19 prints in that but seeing yours like that on the wall as well was a, a real sort of a treat it was just amazing well thanks so i mean so much for saying so it, uh, it, uh, <laughs> i'm really i'm really flattered uh, okay well let's tell you what let's let's jump jump into it can you just tell us a little bit about yourself for the listeners sure uh well uh it's pretty simple um i'm a 35 year old american uh born in new york city and raised in san francisco uh, but uh, I've lived in Tokyo for a total of, I guess, around 15 years. Um, I sometimes wear clothes and occasionally even a hat. <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, so, yeah, 15 years is a long time to live over here. I mean, I, I've, been, I've been here a long time myself, too, and I, I can totally appreciate uh, you know, the fact that you've probably fell in love with the place. But anyway, we'll get onto that a little bit later. Sure. Um, so, photography, you know, we're, it's the Martin Bailey Photography Podcast. So, Indeed uh, it let's, is. Let's, uh, let's uh, you know, talk a little bit about what originally got you into photography. Sure. Um, actually, I've been interested in photography since I was a little kid. Um, uh, my dad, he's a big camera buff, and he always had the latest and greatest film cameras lying around, which I'd tinker with when he wasn't looking. Mm. Um, that having been said, uh, taking pictures was still mostly a, a point-and-shoot affair for me. Um, to be honest, uh, I, I never really understood the attraction of exposing oneself to a plethora of hazardous chemicals in a nearly <laughs> pitch black room for hours on end, uh, only to find out that more often than not, certainly at least in, in my case, uh, that the picture you spent all that time developing didn't actually turn out the way that you wanted it to. Mm. Um, all that changed, uh, however, with the advent of digital cameras, um, I, it was like having a Polaroid on steroids where you mm. could, you know, instantly see what you just shot, uh, giving you the opportunity to recompose and adjust your shot without having to wait uh, to get it developed. Yeah. Um, you know, my first digital camera actually was uh, the Sony Cybershot DSE, uh, I think it was the F505, if I remember correctly, mm. uh, which despite its uh, 2.1 megapixel handicap, uh, at least by today's standards, uh, it had a, a really, really great uh, Carl Zeiss lens, uh, which really made a difference in the quality of images it took. Yeah. Um, it, in fact, uh, you know, some of the pictures, uh, some of my favorite pictures, uh, even today, are, are ones that I took with that very camera uh, on a trip to the Gobi Desert uh, I took in 1999. Um, and some of those are available on, on my Flickr gallery. Um, I see. But uh, yeah, that was sort of the, the really big turning point for me, I think, uh, in my in my photographic pursuits, if you will. Okay, I'm with you. I'm with you. So Gobi Desert must have been fantastic. Oh, fantastic. Absolutely beautiful. If you ever have the uh, opportunity to go, do it. It's just, just fantastic. Sounds it, sounds it. So, um, you know, the, the exhibition, this is really sort of the, the main thing, your art and, uh, you know, the exhibition is the main thing that I wanted to talk about today. So can you tell us a little bit more about the, your, your current exhibition? location and stuff as well. Sure. 
Sure. Um, well, uh, the exhibit is called uh, The Past is the Present and the Future is Now, uh, Eternal Japan. Uh, and it uh, runs through the end of this month at Grail Bar in Nishiyazabu, uh, which uh, is just up the street from Hobson's Ice Cream uh, at uh, Nishiyazabu Crossing, for those of you who... Uh, uh, are either familiar with Tokyo uh, and or live in it. <laughs> mm. um, in terms of the uh, exhibit's theme, uh, it's basically uh, meant to sort of showcase the fusion of traditional uh, Japanese cultural elements and landscapes oh. uh, with the futuristic and often what I would call the dystopian uh, architectural design that sort of defines the Japan of today. Uh, from the perspective of a long-term foreign resident of Japan, which in this case is me. Yeah, uh, it came across. You know, I mean, you, the images that you that you have there are are amazing. And you know, I actually you, you were kind enough to send uh, three images over um, that that we you know spoke about. And so, what I want to do is just uh, mention quickly. You know, I have I've just um, got the web page up here. We I've put a blog post together. To uh, to basically you know allow the the listeners to also take a look at three of your shots while we talk. So sure. what what will what will happen is there'll be a a link in the show notes, or people may even be listening to this directly from the from the new blog. But um, if you are listening and you want to follow along, if you're at a PC, then go to my blog at blog.martinbaileyphotography.com now, right now, and um, and. You know, find the post, or you know, go via the link in the show notes, and that way we'll be able to talk about John's images as we talk. Um, so you know, just go go down past the um, the guy of the fat guy and the, the picture of the fat guy and the good-looking guy with the beers, um, and you're what you. And I'm not saying which one's which there, John. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, I think they'll I, be able to I, guess. I, I, I'll pretend I'm the guy with the glasses. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> They'll be able to guess which one's me. Um, uh, you know, I, I was actually, uh, you know, I was looking forward to, to talking about this particular image because uh, I think this is the, you know, this is really the showpiece that pulls it all together. Uh, you know, I think we're on our maybe our fifth or sixth Guinness at this point. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's also it was one that we because the lighting it's a bar basically, so the lighting was all set up for the image for the photos on the wall, and so I had to run it through some. Um, some weird processing to get it back, get it to sort of you know look this good. So hopefully people will appreciate that a little bit. Well, I think it's got the trademark Martin Bailey touch to it, uh, which is <laughs> it's an absolutely outstanding image. <laughs> okay, well, I'll tell you what, let's scoot down to to your first one, um, which is the Oracle of the Subconscious. Um, yeah, well, t- tell us a little bit about this image. Sure. Um, well, uh, basically, I took this picture, I think, in maybe March of last year, so 2008. Um, it's taken uh, just outside of the entrance to the uh, Oedo Line subway uh, station underneath uh, uh, Tokyo Midtown, which is located in Roppongi. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, uh, what we're looking at here in the foreground is a plate, ga- uh, plate glass uh, ceiling, uh, that uh, is looking down onto the basement uh, level uh, of Tokyo Midtown. And if you look at the very sort of bottom of the image, 
uh, you can see a uh, it's kind of like a jelly bean shaped rock sculpture yeah, with yeah. some people gathered around it, um, and that uh, is juxtaposed with the reflection of the clouds mm-hmm. uh, and the uh, surrounding buildings. And uh, there's this kind of interesting, you know, objet d'art uh, in the background, uh, and I think that that combined with all the other elements, uh, that's where I, I kind of came up with the, the, the idea that it's an oracle. Yeah, right? yeah. It looks kind of like this very surreal, almost dreamlike scape. Um, and uh, this is, of course, uh, like all of the other images in my exhibit, uh, an HDR photograph, which, uh, of course, we will discuss in more detail, I, I believe, later in the podcast. But, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, when, I, when I saw this, I was just like, I wanted to dive in, and I felt as though I could with the, the feeling that you know you've got you've captured there in the, the glass with the reflected clouds. It's just you know totally beautiful. Thank you very much. I, uh, I'm, I I'm I'm quite proud of this particular image uh, uh, myself. Um, I think it's uh, I think it's very interesting uh, in a sort of juxtaposition between. Reality and surreality, if you will. Yeah, yeah, and the the HDR adds so much to that. You know, it's you don't overdo these things, and it it just adds so much. Um, you know what? The the next one, um, <clears throat> the Alley of Broken Dreams, is my wife's favorite. So, yeah, <laughs> and and this me too. I mean, it's just all beautiful. this can be yours, Martin. All this can be yours. <laughs> well, at least I know where it's shot now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it didn't. It didn't. Entirely come out of my my subconscious imagination, but uh, uh, yes, this is uh, as you uh, just mentioned. It's entitled uh, "Alley of Broken Dreams," and this is taken. Uh, I think I took this either late December last year or early January this year, so pretty much winter uh, uh, Japan time. Uh, right in a kind of dingy, very narrow, very long uh, alleyway uh, next to uh, Yurakcho train station on the Yamanote train line. Mm. Um, this is also, uh, of course, HDR, but with this particular photograph, um, I, after, I, this was initially taken in color, and after uh, you know, going through the whole HDR process, which is, again, something I'm sure we'll talk about later in the podcast, um, I took this into a pro- one of my favorite programs, uh, which I also talk about uh, later, uh, called Light Zone, and uh, I basically turned it into a composite black and white uh, sort of cutout image, mm. which is where you get the uh, uh, sort of the intense uh, yellow, uh, you know, trash cans, yeah, yeah. Uh, as well as sort of that uh, the rust color on the sides, and I, I felt that it sort of really not only complemented the image, but you know, really, really sort of expressed what is that, uh, you know, what the alley, what the look of the alley on that particular day uh, sort of felt like to me. Yeah, you, you were telling me that it, uh, you know, it had just stopped raining as you as you shot this. So that's right. Yeah. Obviously, we're going to have the the reflection of the, the the brightening sky in the in the water on the road. There is going to close our pupils down, right? So the rest of the scene is going to look a lot more like this uh, to us as well. At the time, you know, just because you're trying to you're trying to get or handle the contrast with your eyes, so it's I, I think you've captured it very very well. It's and we should also mention, you know, that um, it's easy to see at 13 by 19, uh, but on this, maybe on the size that we have it on the web, maybe not so. But there's a person uh, walking in the distance, right? That, that little, you know, a few. Yes, yeah, so sort of the, the the ghostly wraith figure yeah. and the 
the middle of the uh, that's sort of right in the middle of the vanishing point there. Yeah, it's that really adds so <clears> much. <throat> so uh, yeah, the the next one, uh, this again, and, and what I was thinking when, about what you said earlier, uh, you know, the first one that we looked at, the Oracle of the Subconscious, is like new new building. Midtown is a, is a new a new building, a new area in Tokyo. And then we come down to the, the last one here, the Temple of Haunted Nightmares, Ghosts of the Storm. Um, brilliant title and brilliant image. It's, uh, this really shows like traditional Japan, but in such a haunting way. And so tell us a little bit about this image. Yeah, sure. Um, this is actually, uh, from what I understand, it's called Iredo. Um, and it's sort of, it's located in Ryogoku, which is over by the, uh, uh, where the sumo hall is. Yeah. Um, and uh, this is apparently a memorial hall that is dedicated to all of the civilian war dead uh, in uh, from World War II. Mm. Uh, and I just happened to be out uh, this particular day on my bicycle, uh, tooling around Tokyo, taking pictures as I often do. Mm. Uh, and all of a sudden, I mean, it was a beautifully sunny day when I was out and about. I think it was August last year. And all of a sudden, I mean, within the span of 20, 25 minutes, these massive thunderheads just started rolling in from the horizon. Mm. And I basically snapped this shot just as the rain was just about to start pouring down, and it was lightning everywhere. And I just <laughs> happened to capture uh, it as uh, uh, some sheet lightning uh, just sort of exploded in the, uh, in the sky. Mm. And so that's sort of the, uh, you know, the, the white... Uh, overexposed highlights that you see there uh, see. in the sky. Um, and, you know, the fact that it's, you know, a, a memorial to uh, the civilian war dead uh, combined with the fact that it's just surrounded by these incredible thunder clouds was just, uh, it, 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 I think it makes for a very, very dramatic image. Yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. And, uh, you know, of course, the HDR uh, just simply accentuates that by a factor of, you know, 10 at least. Sure. Yeah, it's beautifully done. I didn't realize that that was. I know that you said it was a. a it was a starting to th- uh, thunder. I didn't realize that the bright in the sky was um, was from a from sheet lightning. That's just yes, amazing. I, yeah, I'd say. Well, as you know, you know, photography is not just about lighting. It's also about timing. So sure. Uh, I, and in this case, both of those factors came to bear at just the right uh, right moment. And I, I was just very very lucky to to get this picture. Yeah, well, I think that's that's a big thing as well. I mean, uh, some people don't like to um, to uh, um, you know accredit photogra- any part of photography to look, but there's always going to be, especially when you're dealing with like natural elements like you know weather and stuff. It, it, it's all, there's always going to be an element of luck as well. Exactly. Yeah, but brilliant. You know, that's that, that's. Uh, I I was there talking um, with my wife on Saturday night about you know, which one is the favorite. And I really couldn't pick. These, these three are, are probably my favorites, um, but there's so many of them that are, uh, you know, that, that are just right up there. Um, so thanks for sharing those with us and, uh, and a little bit of insight into the, you know, the, the process behind them. My pleasure. So um, I, you know, I've, on your Flickr feed, you've got a huge number of uh, excellent images and you you got them down to maybe, I don't know, how many is it? Is it like 10 or 15? Uh, 14, I believe. 14. How did you, what, tell us a little bit about the process that you went through to edit down to the, the images that you selected for the display at the Grail Bar. 
Well, uh, that's an excellent question. Um, <laughs> as you pointed out, I mean, I have literally thousands of images, um, admittedly some a lot better than others. Mm-hmm. Um, so the trick was to kind of figure out a way to, to encapsulate samples of the range of my portfolio um, into a necessarily limited space. Um, uh, that's pretty much when I hit upon the idea of the past is the future and the future is now theme yeah. uh, because I figured I could squeeze a whole bunch of different seemingly unrelated subject matter into that rubric. Um, um, you know, and I, I think the end result is that the images on display are, are a pretty good representation of my body of work. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I think it, it, it uh, represents a fairly decent range of, you know, what I, what I like to shoot and, you know, sort of how I, how do I like to, uh, or, or attempt to represent it. I, I'd not really thought about the whole thing until we, you know, until hearing you say that. Um, but even with the, the name, to be honest, you know, I mean, I'm not very good at these things, and I'd, I'd not really, paced, you know, pieced all of this together until you told me that. Um, but you know, the name of the of the exhibition, and then the, you know, all of the, the sort of sampling that you've got of the very modern, right down to the very old traditional looking images, um, it's it's excellent. Did did the title come to you before the pictures, or or did you select the pictures and then come up with the title? Uh, you know, it it really depends on the image. Um, Sometimes I'll, uh, you know, I'll take a, a picture and I can just, I just know even when it's still on camera that it's going to make a great image, uh, you know, in the, the final analysis, so to speak. Uh, and I'll think of a title right there on the spot. Um, however, I would say the majority of times, uh, you know, after I'm done, you know, editing and processing it, I'll take a look at it and I'll go, what would be an interesting title for that? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, sometimes there, uh, you know, I think some of my titles are somewhat humorous. Other times, uh, I try and use them to sort of enhance uh, the image itself in terms of you know what I'm trying to convey with the uh, you know with the visual. Yeah, um, it just really depends on the image. So, how about the title of the exhibition? How, how did, when you were selecting your images, did the did the title of the exhibition come to you? You know, first, or or did that come after the selection of the images? Uh, no, I, I thought well, I basically thought up the the title and the theme uh, of the exhibit, and then I kind of picked the images to uh, you know to tailor to the uh, uh, to ah. the exhibit. Oh, so I mean, so the title really did come first. That, that's, yes, that's yes. really cool. Excellent job there. So, um, okay, like, like you know, we've seen, you're, you're one of the, in my opinion at least, and I'm sure many others, you're one of the, the real masters of HDR. And it's, it's something that I've never really been able to get my head around that well. Uh, but can you explain sort of briefly to our listeners, you know, what HDR is? Um, I'm sure there's, there's a lot of people will know, but some maybe don't uh, know what the process is all about. So can you explain what it is and why it's necessary? <laughs> yeah, well, thanks for the compliment. I, I don't, wouldn't. Uh, I don't think I refer to myself as the real master of anything except perhaps the universe, but no. <laughs> uh, maybe drinking beer and being a lazy bum most of the time. <laughs> you, you make me sound like, you make me sound like, uh, you know, Ansel Adams or something. But, uh, well, you uh, know, with, with HDR is <laughs> mine, I'd, I'd be, I'd be willing to, to argue that you're close. Uh, all right. I, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I, I'll pay you that hundred bucks we talked about. <laughs> Mention me in a podcast later, but uh, anyway, I, I digress. Uh, to get back to the first part of your question, um, basically HDR is an abbreviation 
uh, for high dynamic range photography, uh, which uh, in a nutshell is a process uh, wherein you take several different exposures of the same subject uh, to create images with a dynamic range, uh, which is to say uh, it's basically the ratio between uh, minimum and maximum measurable light levels mm. uh, that are higher than can be normally achieved uh, with a single photographic exposure using a conventional film camera or a digital camera sensor. Now, I realize that that sounds probably pretty technical, so um, to try and explain it by way of an example, um, let's say you've got a scene with something like I don't know, let's say 12 or 13 different stops of contrast, like a, a sunrise or a sunset over a desert mountain range, let's say. Um, in a conventional photograph, uh, a.k.a. Uh, a low dynamic range or LDR image, as some of these H- as some HDR freaks like to call it, um, in order to capture the details of the sun, uh, you'd have to massively underexpose the shot, uh, meaning that any detail in the foreground or mountains is either silhouetted or otherwise completely enshrouded in shadow. Yeah. Um, conversely, if you try and preserve the foreground details, uh, you end up overexposing the whole image and blowing out the highlights, uh, in, uh, in particular the sun in this case. Um, with HDR, uh, you can keep the details in the foreground and the midground while still maintaining the sun in the background because of the, of the increase in dynamic range. Yeah. Um, as far as why it's necessary, um, I don't think it's a question of necessity, really. I think it's more uh, of a question of why uh, it is that you ultimately want to convey to the person looking at the end image. Mm. Um, if I may wax photographically philosophical for a moment. Mm. Um, I see HDR as uh, sort of a means to express the language of imagination using the vocabulary of post-processing. <laughs> um, what I mean by that is that uh, since HDR really allows one to recreate images that are very close to what the human eye actually sees, yeah. um, I think it's really ideal for adding a very personal and emotive touch to one's photos. Uh, you know, something that increases the ability to express yourself in the way that you want others to see your worldview. Um, it's not just about conveying the scene itself. It's about expressing your imagination and how you use it to interpret the world around you and being able to share that interpretation uh, with the outside world on a more intimate level. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the unmatched depth of detail and almost palpable 3D-like feeling of solidity or solidness it provides mm-hmm. uh, goes obviously a very long way in helping to achieve that goal. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, they say that a, a picture is worth a thousand words. Uh, I would go so far as to venture that uh, an HDR photo uh, has the potential to be worth at least 10,000. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Um, the, the question, you know, why is it necessary is probably not, not the right way to put it. Um, I do, I realize, you know, that I, I never use it, um, and it's not because I I don't need to as such. I mean, there are there are probably times when um, you know I I could I could use it to get uh, a different result or you know capture more of the dynamic range in, in, a, in a high contrast scene. Um, to me, I mean, I I choose not to use it for a number of reasons. Just for my, the, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll come straight out with it. The main reason why I don't is is I'm not brave enough at the moment. <laughs> You know, I mean, I see some of your work, and I'd love to put work out like that. And uh, to me, at the moment, you know, it's just uh, it, I'm not brave enough to, to take that step. Um, and the other part of it is, is that I don't, I don't, I've, I've got some technical problems still with it. I don't, you know, I don't do them as well as you do. 
And so that's, that's part of it. But, you know, I, I have dabbled with uh, HDR and I even, um, you know, over the last few weekends out, I've been shooting bracketed shots and I get back and I'll, I'll stick them into the HDR software and I'll have a go. But then when it comes out, I end up sort of going back to my original and maybe just sort of, you know, bringing some of the detail out in the shadows and something like that in, in Lightroom right. and going with that. Um, but it, a lot of it's more about braveness of taking the step. So, well, you know, actually, um, <laughs> I, um, I would, I will, yeah, I think you know, it does take a little bit of, uh, you know, sort of. Well, I won't even, I wouldn't call initiative. Just sort of a, you know, you got to kind of take the plunge. So yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, to that point, um, I'm actually glad that you brought that up because, um, you know, I, I'm. You know, you, you mentioned uh, earlier that uh, you know there's probably some of your listeners who are familiar with uh, you know HDR, um, and actually I think there are uh, certainly some of those uh, people who maybe cringe when they actually think of HDR images. Mm. Why? Uh, well, um, because I'd estimate that actually anywhere from ninety to ninety-five percent of the HDR photos out there, be it on Flickr, SmugMug, what have you. Um, are just so overdone and over the top that they completely destroy the subject matter at the expense of the post-processing. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I once heard somewhere that HDR could be described as the heavy metal of photography. Uh, <laughs> that, I can relate to that. <laughs> now, I, now, me being a, a metal head, uh, I, I kind of take issue with that. But rather than taking issue with it, let me just say, let me refi- try and refine that analogy. Um, you know, by saying that poorly done HDR is like the death metal of photography. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like visual screaming. Yeah. You look at it too long, it'll make your eyes bleed. <laughs> um, you know, subtly tone mapped HDR, on the other hand, could perhaps be compared to something like progressive trance, uh, ethnic ambient, or another form of nicely mixed electronic music. Yeah. I mean, sure, it may ruffle some phot- photographic purists who claim that, you know, quote-unquote, normal dynamic range photos are the only acceptable form of photography. But when done right, I think it can be, you know, generally viewed as an evolution of the medium. Um, mm-hmm. You know, please note that when I say evolution, I do not mean to imply that it is necessarily superior to conventional photography, um, simply that it builds on those fundamentals and it goes in a different direction. Yeah. Um, it's like the difference between jazz or rock and classical. You know, they're, yeah, they're yeah. All great genres of music that have their respective charms. Uh, yeah. You know, one's not any better than the other, except in the mind of the beholder. I yeah, I fully agree. Uh, and I, I mean, even though I, as I say, I, I haven't yet. Um, well, I think I've got one HDR image that I've actually posted in my gallery, um, and that was a couple of years ago. Um, although I don't do it, I, I fully appreciate it. And you know, I, I mean, I am a little bit old school when it comes to messing around with photos in that I don't sort of clone big things in or out. I'll remove stuff if it's really annoying and, and I'm getting a little bit better with that. Um, again, that comes down to braveness more than uh, ethics. Um, but I, um, I fully appreciate it. And I think that, you know, if you think of it as what it is, it's art. It's not, you know, it's not as though you're, you're shooting these and trying to say that this is exactly how it was. You're, you're shooting them, you're doing your process on them, and you're, you're saying, rightly saying, that it's art. And that, that to, you know, to me, anything goes. Sure. And, and you know, I just, anyway, you know, I think we'll, 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 we can hammer this uh, to death if we, <laughs> if we keep going. But, Absolutely. You know, very, very, uh, you know, I think that, you know, coming back to the point, that the, the way you uh, do it is so subtle that it only adds to the image. So, you know, it, it's you know, all power to you, in my opinion. 
Well, th- thanks, thanks again. I mean, uh, I, uh, I, you know, I, uh, I just uh, go with the flow and, you know, just let my uh, let my mind uh, do the walking. So cool, cool. So you mentioned a little bit earlier, um, and you know, we spoke about this on Saturday a little bit. Um, you mentioned the application Light Zone. And I'd never even heard of that, which I'm a little bit ashamed about because it's obviously a nice piece of kit. Can you tell us about it? Uh, yeah, certainly. Um, you know, it's uh, it's basically a, a standalone program uh, that's made by a small California company called Lightcrafts, mm. uh, and it provides just an absolutely astounding array of processing options uh, with a really easy to use interface. Um, in particular, uh, it allows you to apply local contrast adjustments to specific areas of an image mm-hmm. uh, using something that it calls the Zone Mapper tool uh, without touching the other parts of the photo. Uh, and it can also uh, sharpen an image with almost uh, you know, no perceptible increase in noise, uh, which you know, if you've ever tried to sharpen something in Photoshop, uh, you know, can, uh, it tends to add quite a bit of noise. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I find it particularly useful for HDR images uh, created in uh, Photomatics, mm-hmm. uh, which is sort of the gold standard for uh, uh, for HDR imaging, um, because the latter tends to sometimes uh, like it, I don't know how would you describe it? it's like it applies a soft ethereal edge to objects in the photos, which are not which is not necessarily desirable. Mm-hmm. It, it sometimes it it makes the edges look a little bit soft. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that uh, if you if you use light zone, you can basically eliminate that. And it, it just is really super sharp image. So, you know what? I, I realized that I've just skipped down a few questions. I'd, I'd uh, <laughs> uh, you know, we're, we're, Oh, that's uh, okay. We can, so, we can, we can go so, back. Yeah. So, so you, you mentioned photomatics. Is that, is that what you do the, your, your tone mapping or, you know, your HDR process in, or do you actually do that in light zone? Is there any sort of HDR capability in light zone? Um, is it just I know there isn't. Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't I? Why don't I just kind of briefly go over my workflow for you, and that'll give you a kind that'll of a, a, how I create the image. Great. Um, and uh, you know, my workflow basically depends on on a, you know the Im- image in question. But uh, it generally consists of four to five steps uh, using four different applications, mm. uh, and those are uh, Photoshop, CS4. Uh, Photomatics Pro, uh, Capture NX2, and Light Zone, as I just mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, and I'll, I'll try and touch on these, uh, you know, more de- detail uh, one by one. Okay. Um, now, uh, first off, um, if I need to split a single RAW file into differently exposed TIFFs, um, the reason why I would do this uh, is because uh, if you have a subject where you have moving objects, um, you can't use a tripod or auto bracketing um, otherwise you'll get ghosting because the position of the moving objects is different for each exposure mm. um, so you can get around that by taking a single raw file and then uh, you take a, in my case I use a, a, a Adobe camera raw um, you can use any equivalent raw editing software mm-hmm. uh, to adjust the exposure manually in steps um, I usually go for five exposures um, from basically uh, minus three to uh, to plus three uh, in 1.5 stop increments, um, and you save each exposure as a discrete TIFF file. Um, see. Yeah, and then you take each of those TIFF files and you merge them into the HDR file using uh, Photomatics Pro, which, as I mentioned, is kind of the 
you know, the standard bearer for uh, creating HDR images. Mm. Um, now, it's, of course, possible to create HDR images in Photoshop, CS3, and 4, and I, you may be, even be able to do it in CS2, I can't remember. Um, but the results are nowhere near as good, in my opinion, and it doesn't offer nearly the uh, flexibility and processing options as Photomatics. I see. So I, I didn't realize you're not, you're not bracketing in camera then. Uh, I do sometimes, but like I said, if it's a moving object, you know, you have people yeah. or cars or, okay. you know, if you're okay. trying to photograph like say waves on a, in an ocean, yeah. right? Um, okay. So it depends on what you're shooting. Exactly. Okay. Um, the, the flip side to doing that, the advantage as I just mentioned is that uh, you eliminate ghosting. Yeah, well, that, that's one of the things with me. I mean, I've tried it, and I always end up, I don't know if it's because of ghosting, but I always end up with these sort of, like, really harsh lines or chromatic aberration between the, uh, you know, where in the sort of the intersection between the the, the highlights and the shadows. Right. And Well, I, I'll, uh, I'll actually, I'll, I'll get into that in a second. Oh, brilliant. Um, um, but uh, the downside of, of using the sort of the single raw file approach is that it tends to uh, make the image noisier mm. than doing it, uh, you know, with discrete RAW files. Yeah. Um, I'm sure, as you know, uh, HDR is an inherently noisy process because it effectively multiplies in a given image. Uh, that includes uh, contrast and saturation as well. Mm. Um, so, by basically, when you, for some reason, when you split it into, uh, you know, different uh, exposure, different differently exposed TIFFs, it increases the uh, uh, the level of noise. Um, you know, that's not so much of an issue when you're out in normal daylight conditions, but if you're trying to do a nighttime HDR or, uh, you know, someplace maybe inside with less than ideal lighting conditions, uh, it's best if you definitely, you know, use a tripod and do the auto bracketing method. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, each approach has its relative strengths and weaknesses, but, uh, Hmm. Anyway, uh, getting back to the to Photomatics itself, um, once you have the HDR uh, image, um, uh, the next step is to uh, tone map uh, the HDR image. Um, and what tone mapping is, is it's basically uh, the process of transforming an HDR photo into something that can be displayed uh, on a conventional computer monitor, television, uh, or you know, for making a hard copy print. Uh, all of which have dynamic ranges that are too limited to display the true HDR image, I think, as I, uh, I mentioned earlier. Mm. Um, to quote Wikipedia on the subject, because it does it uh, you know, a lot more eloquently than I can, um, it's basically tone mapping addresses the problem of strong contrast reduction from the scene values, otherwise known as radiance, uh, to the displayable uh, range while preserving the image details and color appearance important, important to appreciate the original scene. Basically, what that means is that uh, you can have your cake and eat it too. Um, it basically, you know, allows you uh, to express all of the uh, dynamic range uh, available through HDR, um, you know, in a way that you know your kind of your conventional equipment can handle it mm. without you know any real with any without any uh, perceptible loss in quality or uh, or contrast or what have you. I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, so anyway, uh, after making uh, your tone mapping adjustments uh, in Photoshop, um, I basically take it back into Photoshop. All right, sorry, in Photomatics, and then I take it back into Photoshop uh, and apply contrast, curve, and other global adjustments 
um, make a few masks uh, sometimes, uh, and as well as some noise reduction uh, if necessary with uh, the indispensable Noise Ninja plugin. Mm. Um, and after that, um, once again, it depends on the image, but I will sometimes drop it into Nikon uh, Capture NX2, um, where I use its just awesome control point fu- functionality, which I just love, uh, to adjust local hue, uh, saturation, etc. Mm. perform other fine-tuning on specific elements, and uh, then I run the finally, uh, or rather the nearly finished image uh, through Light Zone, uh, as I mentioned. Uh, And another thing I'd like to mention about Light Zone uh, that I didn't touch upon earlier is is what I find to be its most incredible feature, and that is its black-and-white tool suite. Yeah. Um, It's just just mind-blowing what you can do with Light Zone uh, with a monochrome photograph. Um, you can burn and dodge an image like you can with a you know black and white film in a dark room. Mm. Uh, you can apply infrared film effects. Uh, you can adjust the grayscale contrast of individual elements in the photo using red and blue filters. I mean, it's absolutely crazy. Um, you know, that's how I created the Alley of Broken Dreams image uh, that yeah. you introduced earlier in the blog. Um, I simply wouldn't have been able to do that in something like Photoshop, which seems to be the main program people use to create black and white images uh, by simply desaturating a color photo. And have you, um, have you used Silver Effects Pro? I have. I have. Um, I do. Um, occasionally, um, I find in 95 to 99% of the case, cases that, uh, uh, that light zone is superior um, I think it's just the flexibility and the graphic interface is just it's just fantastic. Um, you know, the, the program costs about a hundred bucks US, um, and, but it is available as a demo uh, uh, download from Lightcraft's website, which I think is www.lightcrafts.com. Uh, I was just googling it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I I can't recommend enough that you check it out. You will not regret it. I will put a link in the show notes. I've got the link in my clipboard as I speak. That's brilliant. Um, and anyway, Martin, getting back to your, uh, you know, your statement earlier about whenever you try to do HDR, you end up with uh, you know chromatic aberration, CA, mm. black mm. lines in high contrast areas. Yeah. Um, that's actually a common problem with HDR photos um, because, as I said earlier, you know the process itself magnifies everything in the image, and that includes CA. Um, Photomatics in particular also has a, a tendency to produce um, uh, blooming or haloing, as I think it's referred to, yeah. uh, as well as uh, dark, dark and light splotches around straight lines in high contrast areas, as you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, for example, like tree branches or power lines with bright blue sky behind them. Yeah. Um, there are a few ways to eliminate or at least substantially reduce this uh, these phenomenon in my experience. Mm. Um, first, with regard to CA, um, as I'm sure you, you're aware, you can actually correct it at the raw file level uh, in Adobe Camera Raw. Um, if you select the corresponding, corresponding ta- tab in uh, ACR, there are a bunch of sliders that you can adjust yeah. to get rid of it uh, before you start the actual HDR process, uh, which of course eliminates the process or the, the problem from the get-go. Oh, so so you think it's in the original file? I, it is I, actually. If you if you magnify it to maybe two hundred percent, you can see it. I see. I uh, thought it. I thought it was. Um, 
and and coming to come to think of it, it's I usually see it on images that are shot with a, like a, a super wide angle lens or something like that, and yes, they're more that's, prone that's to chromatic aberration. Yeah, right. when you, you know you get out into the you know the longer focal legs, it tends to disappear. I see. Oh, that's that's good to know. Yeah, and uh, you know that that applies not, of course, only to HDR photographs, but uh, yeah. uh, you know, a normal standard, dynamic as yeah, well. Standard raw process. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, with regard to the uh, the haloing uh, that I mentioned, um, yeah. getting rid of that's a little bit more involved, um, but it's definitely doable. Um, and I address it in one of uh, a couple of ways. Uh, first way is while you're doing the tone mapping in in photomatics. Um, there are two settings in particular uh, in the program that I found tend to influence the degree of, uh, of splotchiness, if you will, mm-hmm. um, which are the micro-smoothing and the highlight-smoothing sliders. Um, if you ever open up Photomatics, you'll see them as, a, as options yeah. uh, on, the, on the tabs there. Um, yeah. Uh, the, the first one, uh, micro-smoothing, is basically it controls the smoothing of local contrast in the image. Um, the further you slide it to the left, the more pronounced things like noise and the definition of edges of objects become. Mm. Um, whereas this can create really cool, gritty-looking textures on shots of rusted machinery and urban decay with fairly minimal areas of different contrast in the image. Mm. Um, it can really punctuate the black lines that you mentioned in landscapes and other shots with high degrees of contrast. I see. Um, if you push it over to the right, um, you'll start to see those uh, hard lines soften and or disappear. Right, yeah. Um, That's a good bit of advice. Um, and uh, likewise, the second slider that I mentioned, the highlight smoothing, mm-hmm. uh, what that does is it reduces the contrast enhancements of highlights. Um, if you move this slider to the right, uh, it will reduce the haloing uh, around objects that are uh, placed against bright backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be careful, however, because if you push it too far to the right, uh, you'll actually end up destroying the highlight details in clouds and uh, other high-contrast objects. So, uh, you know, basically both, for both sliders um, or settings, it comes down to finding the right balance for each image. You, you know what? I've, I've moved out of interview mode, and I'm sitting here taking notes for my own self-respect. <laughs> <laughs> um, but hopefully that will be the same as everyone else that's listening to this uh, who's interested and, and yet had the same problems. So <laughs> it's got to be a good thing. Uh, well, yeah, I'm, 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 I hopefully that, yeah, my, my lecture by Dr. John is, uh, <laughs> is helpful. But uh, uh, to, to, uh, there's another way that I, uh, you know, that I also address, uh, you know, these issues that we've been talking about, um, especially because there are times when, you know, no matter how much you move both of these sliders all the way to the right, there's just some photos where you cannot eliminate uh, some halos, um, and, or there's also sometimes when you you just got such a cool gnarly texture on on some elements of the image mm. that you don't want to sacrifice that you mm. know for the haloing. So mm. that's when it's time to sort of call in the big guns, the pixel masking in Photoshop. Yeah, I was, I was uh, wondering if that was what it was. Yeah, um, for this purpose, I almost I, I always save my uh, my most underexposed TIFF or RAW file. Mm-hmm. That I used in the actual, you know, the the process to create the HDR file itself, yeah. uh, as well as the neutrally exposed one. Yeah. Um, that way, you can use it not only to correct any underexposed or overexposed areas of the image, mm-hmm. and get rid of any residual noise uh, that might not be able to that you might not be able to get out with, say, Noise Ninja. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also uh, 
it gets rid of halos and splotchiness by using them as you know sort of layers underneath the tone mapped image and then masking out the bits that need attention. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, masking can be a very time consuming process, um, but I find that the results are almost always worth it. I don't think I have encountered any image that I haven't ultimately been able to get rid of that haloing uh, by applying a, a, either a pixel or a vector mask to. I'm with you. I'm with you. I thought I thought that that was maybe going to be part of it. Um, I'm. You know what? I'm going to ask something else now because I was just about to say that I do the opposite, but I don't even know what you're going to say. So I'll just say. <laughs> um, so how long do you spend on uh, typically? How, uh, on, on average, how long do you spend on an image? Um, once again, it depends. Um, I can spend anywhere from, including uh, because it, it takes a while to render the HDR image itself. Mm. Uh, including rendering, and uh, I mean, I'm on a, uh, I'm using a MacBook Pro uh, a dual core Intel 2.4 uh, gigahertz. Um, so it's a, you know still a fairly fast machine uh, mm-hmm. with uh, about four gigs of RAM. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes me usually about anywhere from a minute and a half to two minutes to render the HDR image itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd say I could spend anywhere from. 10 minutes to an hour on an image. Uh, one of the images that you didn't include on the blog uh, is the, the Heavenly Horizon, uh, yep. uh, the, rather the image entitled Heavenly Horizon, uh, which is a picture of a, uh, a Tori or Japanese Shinto gate on a little small islet uh, out in the Pacific Ocean. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically the sun is setting just behind the rock. Um, and that has, I don't know how many stops of contrast. Uh, it, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and anyway, to get the picture just the way that I wanted it to look and, you know, attempting to just, you know, maintain a, a very fine balance between the sunset and the, fo- the, you know, the Shinto gate in the foreground along with the, uh, the ocean waves. And uh, there's some moss in the foreground, if you'll remember. Yeah. I'm trying to keep all those elements in balance. Um, I think that took me ugh, at least an hour and a half just on that I image. See. I see. Um, yeah. So, so you, you, you are, you're, you're answering how I thought you were going to answer when I started to say that I would do the opposite. <laughs> because, because I, I, although I respect the fact that you do that, I'm, I'm one of these guys that I, I like to do like anything between zero and 30 seconds post-processing on my images and any more than that and I start to get bored so right, right. Uh, hats off I, I do get a little bit experimental with things and, and when I'm doing black and white conversions I'll, I'll sometimes spend a little bit more time you know I, I don't mind spending a little bit of time but um, it, it's one of those things that what I was you know I was talking about earlier I was kind of hoping that when you when I asked the question about um, you know those halos and things I was hoping there was like a magic wand where you just say, oh, yeah, well, you just do this, this, and this, and, they, and you don't get it. But obviously, you know, you, you, it's, it's more in-depth than that. You've got to go in and, and get rid of it manually. Well, actually, um, it, it seems to be, from what I understand from what I've heard from other HDRs and uh, what I've read on various, uh, uh, in various posts and websites and stuff, that it seems to largely be a... Uh, Related to the algorithm that Photomatix uses to process or tone map the HDR image, mm. um, well, I haven't tried it uh, myself because it's only available on Windows, and I'm a Mac user. Um, there's a program by a Korean company called Imaging Luminary, um, known as Essential HDR, mm. 
Mm. Um, that through the use of a completely different algorithm purportedly eliminates most of the issues that I just discussed. Mm. Um, like I said, I haven't tried it. Uh, I did check out the website, and I noticed that a demo is available for download. Um, so if you're on Windows, you might want to give it a try. Um, the uh, few anecdotal reviews that I've, I've read on you know, various uh, uh, groups on Flickr seems to be people seem to like it uh, that wow. use it. Okay. That's another thing I've just been noting down for myself rather than as an interviewee. Um, brilliant. So uh, let's see. One one of the, the other things that we spoke about last week, um, you know, at your party that I was really really um, thrilled about was um, you know how you came to you know you've got this very subtle signature with a stamp on your images. Um, and I was, really, yes. I was really excited last week to hear that the inspiration from that came from my, my using a Japanese stamp on my own work. So that, I, I want to just thank you for that, because you know, not, not just for, for, for using it, but for telling me that that's where the, where the inspiration came from. Well, you know, I mean, Martin, I got to give props where props are due. Uh, <laughs> I was indeed inspired by your use of your personal seal on your prints. Um, I think you, you've definitely taken it to a different level. I mean, the, it's, it's very subtle. The way you, you've got that, like a silvery gray look there, very, very subtle. It's, it's well, nice. well, you know, I mean, okay. The first time that I came across your website and I saw the prints in your online gallery, I was like, "Dude, that's awesome!" What I mean, what a great way to sign one's work, particularly with regard to Japan. I mean, mm. now that having been admitted to, I obviously didn't want to copy it verbatim. After all, it's like I said, it's a source of inspiration, not piracy. Right. Um, so, you know, I came up with the idea to, to add a little Sanskrit like font under my actual signature and I photoshopped the personal seal to make it look sort of more stylized, mm. uh, and a little bit, uh, you know, more subtle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it but, looks, looks very, very nice. Well, well, I mean, thank you for that. And thanks very much for the inspiration. Martin. <laughs> I was, I was, you know, to use a, a Britishism, I was chuffed to bits when I heard that. <laughs> so let's move away from the process a little bit um, and everything. We, you, know, huh? I, you mentioned earlier that you, you often jump on your, on your bike, your, you know, your, your cycle in there and go around the city and that looking for images. But you know, how do you sort of find your subject matter? Is there any, any sort of anything that you do to, to, to find these great subjects? Well, you know, it's pretty simple, really. Um, whether I'm walking around or biking around, um, when I look at something – you know, I always think to myself, well, would this make a good picture that other people would be interested in seeing? Mm. Um, you know, since my camera and lenses are quite heavy, um, I'm currently using a, a Nikon D700 with the, the battery grip. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I've got like three or four different lenses. And uh, I usually carry them all around with me, if at all possible, just, you know, for any contingency. Yeah. Um, I'm not usually in the habit of hauling them around with me all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a result, I'll take a, a note of a particular spot I happen upon, um, uh, sometimes by taking a snapshot of it with my camera phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I'll come back uh, at a later date when uh, the weather's good uh, with my gear. I see. Um, that's actually the reason, in fact, why uh, I'm sure you may have noticed this, but uh, I, that's why I don't have too many uh, so-called street shots of Japan in my portfolio. Because mm-hmm. um, unless I'm already out on a shoot with my kit and – you know, something interesting from the human standpoint happens, uh, it just doesn't get recorded. 
I see. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, you know, I get all kinds of cool stuff when I go on vacation or you know to festivals and whatnot because it's a given that I have my camera on hand. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I just you start snapping away, but uh, got you. Yeah, that's that's kind of my basic uh, my basic scouting philosophy, if you will. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I don't keep a, a big camera with me all the time either. Uh, you know, I generally sort of I I, I know that I miss um, some. Uh, opportunities with this but you know i mean for me i mean mo- the majority of what i really enjoy doing is nature work and so there's not a lot of it in the middle of tokyo but you know i sort of i switch into photographer mode and and then go all out and it's just everything for the for the art and then i switch back into sort of you know uh, off to the office sort of you no know, normal sort of mode and it's kind of you know wearing two different hats and and so i, I can appreciate the way you the way you do that sure sure so you know, you like me. You've got, you've got a deep appreciation for the Japanese language and the culture. Do you? I mean, just looking at your work, I, I imagine I already know the answer. But do you feel that this shows through in your art? You know, your appreciation for the language and the culture. Uh, does it influence you in any way? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I can say without a doubt that my long time in Japan and my understanding of the language and culture influenced my work tremendously. Mm. Um, I've been here long enough to not only know about places that most Japanese don't even know exist, uh, yeah. tourists, um, but you know, also my understanding of the culture and language is such that when I see a statue of Buddha in a given temple, for example, mm. uh, or a sign written in kanji uh, on the street, um, I, know, I generally know its significance in the context within which it exists. Mm. Um, that understanding, I think, is tempered by the fact that I am a Westerner living in Japan, Mm. Uh, and as such, I think I have an innate Western sensibility and eye when it comes to looking at a given scene and then framing and composing the shot in a way that is usually very different from how, say, a Japanese photographer would approach the same subject matter. Yeah. Um, the combination of the two uh, makes for something that seems to appeal simultaneously to both Japanese and non-Japanese alike um, because my images contain elements that are both familiar and exotic at the same time to both groups. I've, uh, I've, been, I've been told the same thing. So, you know, it, by by usually by Japanese people that, you know, oh, I would never have shot that that way, and it does tend to appeal to them uh, sometimes, not always, but sometimes. Yeah, well, with, you know, I mean, my, let me say that's not like you said; it's not just my work. I, I sense the same thing when I look at your nature and wildlife shots. Mm. Uh, you know, they have they just have this sort of ineffable je ne sais quoi to speak uh, to them that captures the attention and admiration of everybody who sees them, including me. That's very nice of you to say, John. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm straight from the heart. Thanks very much. So let's see. I understand that you uh, you're going to be kind enough to uh, to to if anyone goes over to your gallery and takes a look and buys one of the prints, you're going to give them a bit of a discount if they heard it here, right? Yes. Well, you know, I, I, I even if it's a drunken promise, I can't renege on it. <laughs> Uh, so yes, indeed, uh, for anyone, uh, that is listening to the podcast now or, uh, by, uh, the end of the exhibit, which is the June 29th, um, if you, uh, just send me an email mentioning that you, uh, did indeed hear about the, uh, the exhibit, uh, on Martin's, uh, uh, podcast, I will be, uh, willing to provide a 15% discount on the purchase of, uh, any of the prints. Yay. <laughs> so okay, so John, I want to order that one. <laughs> that that one of the uh, of the alley. Can I have one of those, please? 
Well, I'll tell you what. I, I'll trade you for one of yours. How's that? <laughs> you know what? Print trading is pretty is a pretty cool thing to do. So, well, I'm all take, about bartering. Yeah, we'll have to take that one up online. <laughs> all right, uh, for sure, for sure. Um, so that's really kind of you, though. Uh, you know, I uh, I'm sure that, that you know someone someone or a few people are going to be running down there uh, tomorrow to pick one of those up. Um, and you know what I. I have seriously. I, I didn't say that in joke, um, not about the discount, but I, I have seriously. <laughs> been, I have seriously been considering picking one up as well. So, if we can do a print trade, that'll be amazing. Oh, it would be. It would be my honor. Uh, mine too. So yeah, we'll we'll pick that one up again offline. Um, right. So you know that's about it for for the interview. I, I'm I really do appreciate you spending the time to talk with me tonight, and I'm sure that my listeners are going to love this. Um, so, yeah, any closing thoughts before we uh, before we wrap up? Uh, come on down and see the exhibit. Uh, we'd love to have you. Yeah. So I'll just mention again, you know, the address, everything is on the blog post. There's a link to the blog post in the show notes. So there's no excuse. If you live in Tokyo or you've got the money to jump on a plane and come to Japan uh, for John's exhibition, then do so. It's you won't regret it. It's it's really amazing. Yeah, you better fly in over or I'm going to track you down and take some HDR blackmail photos of you. <laughs> okay, well, thanks very much, John. It really has been a pleasure. Pleasure's all mine, Martin. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Cheers. Okay, so we'll wrap it up there. I'll cut it off there. I'm, I'm okay. really hoping that there's nothing wrong with this. Uh, <laughs> I, if, you know, if there is, I will buy you 25 pints of beer to do it again. Uh, <laughs> all so, right, well, I'll tell you what. Let's do it after we drink the 25 pints. Yeah. <laughs> that was okay so really thanks john it's it's really been a pleasure and i'll uh, th- this will probably go out tonight unless there are any problems so if you want to check okay. that out uh, uh, but i'll email when it's out anyway okay um just uh, one quick uh, last thing mm. um uh if you could on the blog um in addition to my Flickr gallery yeah if you could put my blue canvas uh, gallery simply because uh, it's like a flash gallery. I think the presentation is a little bit nicer. Than, oh, okay. Um, so, do you, do you have a link? Where is it? Oh, thing? I do. Yeah. Well, I'll just uh, I'll just uh, chat it to you. Yeah. Okay. So one moment. Then let me go back up to the show notes and I'll get it in there, and then I'll move it across. So what is it? Um. Well, here I'll just uh, I'll just send it to you. Yeah. Oh, I see. I thought you meant chap as in with your mouth. <laughs> no, no, no. Sorry. I meant... Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. I just, yeah, via Skype, cha- <coughs> Skype uh, 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 chat. Canvas. Brilliant. Okay. I will get that into the blog and into the show notes. Um. And you know what? I, I may even end up leaving a little bit of this in so that I can, so that people understand. I'll 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 play that one by you. Okay. Um, all right. Well, thanks again, then, John. And I'll I'll catch you again soon. We'll have to go out for beers again soon. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. All right. Cheers. Then. All right. Thanks, Martin. All right. Have a good all one. Right. Good night. Bye. Bye. So that's it. I really enjoyed chatting with John. He's a nice guy and an amazing artist. Don't forget to check out my new blog at blog.martinbaileyphotography.com and sign up for the RSS feed as well. There'll be lots of good stuff coming up down the pipe there. And you can also follow me on Twitter if you're interested in what I do, um, in, you know, just blow by blow through the week. And my Twitter name is Martin Bailey with no space. 
Once again, I just wanted to say a quick thanks to our sponsors, WebSpy. To find out more about WebSpy products, visit webspy.com slash MBP and use the discount code MBPWSY for a 10% discount on all products. Whatever you're up to, you have a great week, whatever you're doing. Bye-bye. the Copa, Copa Cabana. His name was Martin. He was a showgirl. The Martin Bailey Photography Podcast is a proud member of the Photocast Network. Find this and other great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com.